the people who we sort of hold up as these icons of history were actually just human beings. And I guess the reason that's so hard to contemplate in a way is that we need certain people in our world to feel larger than life. You know, we need superheroes. Do you like books? I'm outlining a new writing project. Who wrote this book? Read it. Do you read it? Sometimes I'd write something. What are you writing? Have you written anything lately? I'm Amanda Stern, and this is Bookable. On today's show, the origin story of a real-life superhero! Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! Okay, so our hero didn't have supernatural superpowers. There can only be one Superman, of course. He had human ones. Did you ever think about some of the super things that you can do for yourself? Namely, a steadfast determination to save lives. In a single year, he saved over 2,000 people. You might even have him to thank for your existence. It's the most amazing story you've never heard. Until now. Amazing. There she is. Hi. Hi. And that story is the subject of our guest's latest book. Great. Good. Yeah. Please introduce yourself. My name is Julie Oringer, and my novel is The Flight Portfolio. Julie Oringer. Her new book, The Flight Portfolio, is a brilliant work of historical fiction that sort of came about by chance. I was researching the Franco-German armistice. Sounds like my typical Saturday night. Okay. Sorry. Go on. And I learned that there was a clause called the Surrender on Demand Clause, which essentially meant that any German national could be extradited from France to Germany at any time. When I Googled Surrender on Demand, up came this memoir by this American named Varian Fry. Aha! There's our man, Varian Fry. It wasn't a name Julie was familiar with, so she Googled some more, and the results astounded her. It turned out that he had had this heroic role in World War II, and he had saved people like Marc Chagall and André Breton and Hannah Arendt and Max Ernst. And I was astonished to know that there was one person who, in conjunction with a number of associates, had essentially protected and preserved the creative capital of Europe. And by doing that, had kind of set the nature and tone of thought for the rest of the 20th century. How could such an astonishing and inspiring piece of history be virtually unknown? Julie knew she had to tell his story. It begins with concerned American activists who called themselves the Emergency Rescue Committee. Of particular importance to them were the perils that awaited some of Europe's foremost thinkers and artists on the brink of World War II. So, they created a list of intelligentsia they believed should be saved. So he went with this list. He had 200 people on the list. Mm -hmm. He thought he was going to stay for a month. That's right. He ended up staying for how long? Well, he stayed for about 13 months. And during that time, he, he underwent this amazing evolution of his original idea. He basically saw himself riding a bicycle through the countryside and rounding up writers and artists who were just you know, hanging out in the Levin Groves or picnicking in Provence and somehow whisking them, teleporting them magically 
from Marseille to 42nd Street. <laughs> and it was a little different from that because, you know, a lot of the time there was just hearsay about where a particular artist might be. And if he was lucky enough to find that person, then he had to actually convince them that they were in enough danger to leave the country, which was a risky proposition. It's easy to imagine how in a place like France, after people had fled to France from the occupied countries, France, which had been this kind of beacon of hope and freedom for much of the world for many decades, um, to convince them that in France of that particular moment, they were in such grave danger that they had to risk arrest or the loss of their lives or internment in concentration camps to try to get over the border into war-torn Spain and from there to Portugal and from there to the States, where perhaps they knew no one or perhaps they only had the vaguest connections and no way of really envisioning how to make a life there. But for so many of these people, that was the only way they were going to survive. So I think one of the the greatest challenges for Varian was simply to convince people that they had to go. It's so interesting to me that the artists thought that the Nazis valued their vision mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and their intellect and what they had to say. Was it that the focus was more on the Jews and they didn't think that they were in jeopardy? Well— for artists like Chagall or for artists like André Gide or Breton, I mean, they had come of age in a Europe that elevated its artists and writers above everything. Even though Nazism was not new at this point, there really was only, let's say, a seven-year window in which that had sort of come to be the political tenor of the day. And these were These were people who were in their 50s and 60s, many of them. And so the majority of their lives had been lived in an environment where people who did what they did really were protected. So it wasn't crazy for them to think that way, although much of the work that they were producing at the time was commentary upon the Nazi occupation and upon fascism in general. And so I don't think it was necessarily that they thought the Nazis would protect them. I think they really thought that the French government would protect them. I don't don't think that anybody really understood the degree to which France would become a cooperator and collaborator. From the flight portfolio, page 85. Anything could go wrong at any time, and it was foolish to think otherwise. Everyone's papers had to be in order. Forgeries could only be of the highest caliber. They couldn't take any risks. And no more fake check passports under any circumstances. The process of trying to get visas and papers to leave the country took months. Your French exit visa had to be coordinated with the date of your Portuguese entry visa and your Spanish entry visa and your U.S. entry visa. And to get all these papers to line up and for you to have a valid passport... Um, It was so unlikely that all of those elements would line up perfectly that people often spent months and months just trying to arrange those documents. And then once you did, there was the question of how you're actually going to get out. What a lot of Varian Fry's clients did was to take trains to the border of Spain. Then they would have to switch to a different train that actually went over the border because the railway was at a different gauge in France than in Spain. Then they would have to hope that they would make it through the station checkpoint on the other side. 
Now, for so many people who didn't have all of those papers together, but who needed to leave France anyway because they were directly endangered, it was impossible to take trains, and so they would have to walk over the border on foot. They essentially had to cross the Pyrenees on foot. And so one of the episodes in the book is this border escape by a group of refugees that were so directly endangered that they really couldn't wait, despite the fact that not all their papers were exactly what what they should have been. So this group included Heinrich Mann and his wife Nellie, Golo Mann, who was Thomas Mann's son, Franz Werfel and his wife Alma, who had previously been married to the architect Gropius and the composer Gustav Mahler. And together, this group of people were going to try to cross by train. But it was impossible because the border station was being inspected by Vichy guards that particular day. So this group had to walk over the border despite the fact that a number of them were elderly and not in good health. You know, the temperature was in the high 80s and the sun was beating down. It was only really by virtue of the clemency of the border guards that they actually managed to cross and get safely to the other side. I wanted to capture that episode in the novel because I felt like so much of the tension around Fry's organization was the sheer difficulty of the actual crossings once the papers were in place. From the flight portfolio, page 299. He wanted him close, day and night, as at Pamier, as at Arles. In his own hand now was the slim volume of Le Fond de Mob, nostalgic Faulkner in French. Lives were at stake, but he knew what he wanted. He had been denied it for more than a decade. He slid his leg alongside Grant's, and Grant pressed his knee through the layers of their clothing. In addition to struggling against the Nazi machine, in addition to trying to figure out how he was going to save the creative capital of Europe, he was likely also struggling with the issue of his own sexuality and how to live in the world. We have a memoir by the French diplomat Stéphane Hassel. Stéphane Hassel was in the south of France at that time trying to get out of the country, and Varian Fry was helping him. And in the course of their friendship, they became very close. And according to Hassel's memoir, they had a romantic relationship that unfolded as the two of them went alone together on weekends into the little towns of Provence and, you know, went sightseeing and swimming and exploring. At the time, there was no way that Varian Fry would have been able to write about that romantic relationship. He didn't even write very much about Lincoln Kirstein, his classmate from Harvard, with whom he started The Hound and Horn, which was this great kind of rule-breaking literary magazine. But he and Lincoln Kirstein were lovers as well. So as I learned about that element of Varian Fry's life, it seemed to me that there was a major lapse in the way we understood this person's role in history. When he was in Marseille, he was away from his wife of many years for the first time. They had met when he was in college, and they had had this very rich intellectual life together. But I think while she knew about Varian Fry's sexual history, felt like that was kind of a puerile passion or was just part of his past. It wasn't something that she felt like he was going to carry into his adult life. 
Um, and when he was away from her in France, I think it was probably one of the first times in his adult life that he had actually gotten to have a relationship with another man. So I decided to write a kind of speculative history in a way, a story about a relationship that differed from the actual one that he had, but that he could potentially have had with somebody who embodied certain elements of Hassel and certain elements of Lincoln Kirstein. Though I wasn't really thinking of a kind of two-to-one relationship. I wasn't really thinking about making those specific historical characters into one person. I thought of bringing into this story somebody else who had something to hide, somebody else who was carrying a secret and whose friendship with Fry might challenge his own decisions about what he hid and the way he lived his life. I guess the moral imperative that I felt most strongly was to right the wrong of our never speaking about Varian Fry as a gay hero. He hasn't been celebrated nearly enough for the work he's done. But to the extent that he has been, the issue of his sexuality has always been a kind of shadow. Like, despite the fact that we think he may have had relationships with men, he was still a hero. And I felt like that sentence needed to be drastically revised, that we needed to think about how his own sexuality might have sensitized him to difference and might have galvanized him to fight for other people who he felt were persecuted. Time for a short break. When we come back, an economist, an art student, and an heiress walk into a bar and join the cause. Stick around. Welcome back to Bookable. I'm Amanda Stern, here with Julie Oringer, author of The Flight Portfolio. Iron Man had the Avengers, Batman had the Justice League, and Varian had his own set of hero collaborators, each with unique abilities. When he got to Marseille, one of the first things he did was to begin to recruit associates. He believed so strongly in the mission that he could evangelize it to anybody, And so he was great at getting people excited about it and involved in it. And he was very direct. Um, When he saw somebody who he thought would be able to help him out, he didn't hesitate to ask that person for help in the most sort of blunt and need-forward way possible. Um, One of his first associates was Albert Hirschman, uh, who later became a famous economist. Hirschman's specialty, one of the things he writes about, is the importance of failure. It was a good thing that there was somebody with that philosophy involved with the Emergency Rescue Committee. Failure was a daily occurrence in their organization. Another of their associates was a young American named Miriam Davenport, who was originally from Boston. She was an art history student who had spent a bunch of time in Paris and had studied at the Sorbonne. She had a lot of connections to artists and writers who were on Varian Fry's list. She also had a highly developed sense of artistic taste, which became important to Varian Fry's mission because his resources were so limited and the time that he had in Marseille was necessarily constrained by this urgency of the increasing 
direness of the war. So in order to distribute resources in the way that his organization felt was best, he and his colleagues often had to make decisions about whom to save based upon their artistic merit. Miriam Davenport was somebody who knew a little bit of something about artistic merit. And so she was oftentimes the one who made determinations about whether somebody's talent allowed them a position of privilege among the client list. Um, One of Miriam Davenport's close friends was a woman named Mary Jane Gold. She was an American heiress who had gone to Italy for finishing school and essentially had stayed in Europe flying her Percival Vega Gull airplane around the continent and partying lavishly, getting to know all sorts of glittering people, and having a grand old time. Once the war began, she became politically engaged. She immediately gave her plane to the French Air Force. Um, She was both a generous donor and a generous participant in Varian Fry's project. And those were just a few of the people. There were many others whose specific talents were necessary to the organization, people who knew how to get refugees over the border, people who knew how to get visas from the U.S. visa office, people who could forge documents, people who had connections in the Marseille Police Department. All of these these members of the team were absolutely essential to the mission. So when we talk about making a difference as an individual, I think we're talking about two things. We're talking about, you know, decisions about how we act and about what, you know, how we spend our time and what we devote ourselves to. And we also are talking about knowing where our limitations are, knowing who else we need to be associated with in order to get that work done. I really loved this book for a lot of reasons, but one of the things that I really loved was that it's a, a book of activism. Mm-hmm. And it's actually bringing people through a story that proves exactly what one person can do. And I think that you know, it's an incredible thing to be putting out into the world at this moment. I, I really hope so. And I feel like, you know, the, this was not something that I would have anticipated when I started writing the book. The first year that I was really devoting to the research of the book was the same year Obama came into office. And we saw this shift in the role that we played in the world that kind of brought us out of the trauma of 9-11 in a way and allowed us to become, as a country, more embracing, more accepting of immigrants. That was the tenor of the political situation in which most of the writing of this book took place. There was no way that I could have anticipated what was going to happen in 2016. I was totally shocked by it and have been shocked afresh by every exclusionary policy towards immigrants, by the absolutely horrific policy of family separation, and by the way our role has changed in the eyes of the world. I find as I'm talking about the issues that Varian Fry's clients were facing at the time, they sound uncomfortably timely. They sound uncomfortably relevant to our political moment. How are we going to continue to be a country that leads in the arts and in the sciences, in technology, and in so many different arenas if our borders are closed down? If, as Trump suggests, we don't have any more room in this country, if we're full. 
Well, you asked me about Varian Fry's associates in Marseille. There's one who I feel like I should mention in this context. His name was Hiram Bingham III. He was a vice consular officer and was one of the few consular employees who was actually sympathetic to the Emergency Rescue Committee's cause. So single-handedly, he was responsible for the delivery of many, many U.S. visas that ended up saving Varian Fry's clients, allowing them to get out of France and get to the States. He did that even though he knew that it was an act of contravention against the policies of the consulate at the time. He did it knowing that it would probably get him fired, and in fact it did. And yet he did it anyway because he also knew it was the right thing to do. And if he hadn't have done that, then, you know, there would have been unbelievable losses among Varian Fry's client list. So once again, I just keep coming back to the idea of a single person's influence, the way that one human being can make a difference to the lives of thousands of others because they're willing to break some rules, because they're willing to take a stand against a political position that they feel is just dead wrong. Julie Oranger author of The Flight Portfolio. It's published by Knopf and is available now. Bookable is a production of Loud Tree Media. I'm your host, Amanda Stern, five feet tall and a real-life superhero. To my dog, Busy. We're produced by me, Bo Friedlander, and Andrew Dunn, who also mixed and sound designed the show. Bo is Loud Tree's co-founder and editor-in-chief. Catch us on the web at bookablepod.com, where you can find previous episodes, show notes, and links to all of the books and authors featured on the show. And for those of you interested in writing your own amazing piece of historical fiction, just keep in mind it can take a really long time. Um, I started writing the book in about... 1843, or at least it feels like it was about that long ago, Uh, or maybe it was during the Napoleonic Wars. I'm not exactly sure, but I've been writing for a long time. This is Bookable.